0: Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 40 minutes or so, I'll summarize selections from our June 2012 issue, bringing you up to date on important peer-reviewed research and reviews. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Although suicide risk may be similar in bipolar I and II disorders, predictive factors are not well defined for each diagnostic type or across cultures. The investigators compared selected demographic and clinical factors in adult patients with bipolar I or II disorder who were followed clinically for over nine years. Their study was supported by the University of Barcelona, the Spanish government, and grants from Bruce J. Anderson Foundation and McLean Hospital. Rates of suicidal ideation and suicidal acts were similarly prevalent among both diagnostic types and were somewhat more common among women than men. Factors that were significantly and independently associated with suicidal acts included suicidal ideation more mixed manic-depressive episodes per year, and personality disorders. Factors associated with suicidal ideation included suicidal acts, more antidepressant trials, and predominant depressive recurrences. Risk factors selectively associated with overall risk of suicidal ideation or acts included more mixed states per year, melancholic features, and more antidepressant trials. The authors conclude that more clinical and pharmacologic studies are needed to assess suicide risk and its prediction and prevention in bipolar disorder patients, especially those with bipolar 2 disorder. They also note that greater efforts are needed to develop potentially effective and safe means of treating depressive and mixed states, as well as to limit suicide risk and other adverse effects of such states. Zimmerman and colleagues ask why some depressed outpatients who are in remission according to the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale nonetheless do not consider themselves to be in remission. In a study partly sponsored by Eli Lilly, they interviewed 274 psychiatric outpatients with dsm four major depressive disorder who were in ongoing treatment. The patients completed measures of depressive and anxious symptoms, psychosocial functioning, and quality of life. The investigators found that more than one-half of the patients scoring 7 or below on the Hamilton Depression Scale did not consider themselves to be in remission. Self-described remitters had significantly lower levels of depression and anxiety than did patients who considered themselves not to be in remission. Compared to self-described non-remitters, the remitters reported significantly better quality of life and less functional impairment due to depression. Self-described remitters were significantly less likely to report dissatisfaction with their mental health. They had higher positive mental health scores, and they reported better coping ability. The researchers suggest that a patient with few symptoms but with life stressors may need a psychotherapy intervention, or that a patient with residual fatigue and reduced concentration impacting work performance may benefit from a modification in treatment with a pharmacologic intervention that targets these features. The authors go on to suggest that the widely accepted Hamilton Depression Rating Scale score definition of remission may need to be lowered. The authors acknowledge that such a change would mean that fewer patients in the acute phase of treatment would reach remission, and they ask whether the field is ready to accept these troubling consequences. Bipolar disorder is a serious condition that is not sufficiently controlled by medication. Psychosocial interventions can help manage bipolar disorder, but they tend to be lengthy, expensive, and difficult to disseminate. Almost no treatment trials have compared psychosocial interventions head-to-head. This CME offering reports the results of a study comparing psychoeducation and cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, in a single-blind randomized controlled trial. The study was conducted by a group from the Canadian Network for Mood and Anxiety Treatments. Psychoeducation was administered in a six-session group intervention, and CBT was administered as a full 20-session individual intervention. About 200 participants with type 1 or 2 bipolar disorder participated. The authors looked at symptom course and morbidity prospectively over 72 weeks. Results showed that both treatments reduced symptoms and the likelihood of relapse. There was no difference between psychoeducation and CBT in terms of symptoms or relapse rate. However, there was a difference in cost. Psychoeducation cost only $180 per subject. CBT cost a full $1,200 per subject. Dropout and completion rates were similar between the two groups. Less than one in ten participants dropped out of the study, and about two-thirds completed the full course of treatment. The authors conclude that group psychoeducation is less expensive to provide and requires less clinician training to deliver for the same clinical benefit. They suggest that this cost-benefit advantage makes group psychoeducation attractive for widespread dissemination. To receive CME credit for this article, read the full article at psychiatrist.com and take the post-test. In the next two summaries, we report about articles by Brenton colleagues concerning the topic of non-suicidal self-injury, a common and distressing behavior among adolescents. Non-suicidal self-injury is the direct deliberate infliction of pain and tissue damage by an individual on his or her own body in the absence of suicidal intent, psychosis, mental retardation, or developmental delay. Non suicidal self-injury is a significant and common public health problem among adolescents with community studies reporting a prevalence of around 20% for non-suicidal self-injury and studies of adolescent psychiatric inpatients reporting rates as high as 82%. Brenton colleagues investigated familial and individual correlates of non-suicidal self-injury among the offspring of mood-disordered parents. They conducted a cross-sectional analysis of a longitudinal cohort study of familial transmission of suicidal behavior. Participants included 291 probands with dsm four mood disorder, one half of whom had attempted suicide, and 507 of their offspring. The primary outcome was non-suicidal self-injury in the offspring. The investigators found incidents of non-suicidal self-injury in 7.7% of 507 offspring. Through multivariate logistic regression, it was found that the most salient correlates of non-suicidal self-injury were diagnosis of depression and greater aggression, depressive symptoms, and suicidal ideation. Upon multivariate analysis, only individual predictors remained significant. The role of familial variables was not significant. This study was funded in part by the National Institute of Mental Health, the University of Pittsburgh, and the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation. Non-suicidal self-injury is a common and distressing behavior among adolescents. Little is known about what predicts the development of this condition or its relationship to suicidal behavior. In a second June JCP article, Brent and colleagues conducted a longitudinal study of 352 youths aged 10 years or older who were the offspring of parents with mood disorders. During nearly four years of observation, 7.4% of these youths showed at least one episode of non suicidal self injury, which was predicted by current depression, current suicidal ideation, and previous episodes of non suicidal self injury. Non suicidal self injury was a strong predictor of future suicide attempts. However, there were certain risk factors for future suicide attempts that were distinct from predictors of non suicidal injury, namely, parental history of suicidal behavior, parental history of abuse, and offspring aggression. The authors conclude that non-suicidal self-injury may be an earlier manifestation of a shared diathesis with suicidal behavior, and that in patients with this diathesis who also have family pathology and greater levels of aggression, suicidal behavior is likely to ensue. The authors recommend, first of all, that non-suicidal self-injury and suicide attempt be assessed in any mood-disordered patient. Second, they recommend that clinicians who encounter non-suicidal self-injury in a patient should assess for suicide attempt and vice versa. And finally... They note that treatment of depression and strengthening of mood regulation skills in a patient with non-suicidal self-injury not only may lead to relief of non-suicidal self-injury, but also may help forestall the occurrence of suicidal behavior. This study was funded in part by the National Institute of Mental Health, the University of Pittsburgh, and the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation. It is difficult to predict which individuals with major depressive disorder are at risk for a manic episode and conversion from MDD to bipolar one disorder. Previous studies have not been able to identify factors that existed before a depressed patient's first manic episode. In a study supported by the National Institutes of Health, Stephen Gilman and colleagues analyzed NISARC data and identified more than 6,000 individuals who had MDD at the time of their enrollment in NISARC but had no prior history of mania. The authors looked for factors reported at the time of enrollment that were associated with the development of mania during the follow-up period. The two factors that predicted transition from MDD to Bipolar 1 were anxiety disorders, both social phobia and generalized anxiety disorder, and environmental stressors. These stressors covered the whole lifespan, ranging from childhood abuse to recent social support group problems. The authors conclude that although more research is needed, both psychiatric and environmental factors could serve as risk indicators for conversion from MDD to bipolar one disorder. Recent studies have suggested that restrictions on the use of clozapine should be reassessed on the basis of the risk-benefit ratio. These recent studies emphasize the need for large nationwide databases for surveillance of drug safety. This article reports on a retrospective longitudinal study in which investigators analyzed all cases of clozapine-induced agranulocytosis reported to the Finnish National Agency for Medicines between 1982 and 2007. The investigators identified a total of 163 patients. The study found that clozapine-induced agranulocytosis developed mainly during the first year of drug treatment. However, in 10.3% of cases, agranulocytosis occurred after the second year of treatment, and in some patients, it occurred after 13, 14, or 22 years of clozapine treatment. A striking finding was that a total of 40% of all patients and 80% of those with fatal agranulocytosis had received, concomitantly with clozapine, other medications associated with agranulocytosis. The authors conclude that some restrictions and long-term blood monitoring are still warranted and that concomitant treatment with other potentially agranulocytosis-inducing medication may be a risk factor. They raise the question of whether new guidelines are warranted for concomitant use of drugs associated with agranulocytosis during clozapine therapy. Esadenosil methionine, or SAMI, is a popular natural over-the-counter product that is taken for a number of potential health problems, including depression. Many doctors are concerned about the use of Sami because of the risk that taking SAMI could result in increased blood levels of homocysteine, a related compound that has been shown to have potentially harmful effects on the heart. A group of North American researchers examined patients with depression who were treated for six weeks with SAMe, 800 to 1,600 milligrams a day, or a placebo, in addition to their usual antidepressant. In each group of patients, blood levels of SAMe and homocysteine were measured before and after treatment. As expected patients who received SAMe had increased blood levels of SAMe after six weeks compared to those who received placebo. However, homocysteine levels did not increase in a significant manner in either treatment group. This finding suggests that SAMe should be safe for depressed patients and that it should pose no significant risk to the heart. The investigators cautioned that their study sample was small, comprising only 35 patients, and that their results should be considered preliminary. They also note that individuals who wish to try SAMI for depression or any other indication should do so under the supervision of a physician. This study was funded by the National Institute of Mental Health. Sammy and matching placebo were provided by PharmaVite. Post-traumatic stress disorder is a debilitating stress-related illness associated with trauma exposure. The mechanisms that underlie the stress response in PTSD are not well understood. The renin-angiotensin pathway, which is key to cardiovascular function, is also involved in mediating stress and anxiety. In this study, the authors analyzed the association between active treatment with blood pressure medications, including angiotensin-converting inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers, and PTSD symptom severity within a highly traumatized civilian medical population. The study sample was recruited from outpatients at Atlanta's Grady Memorial Hospital from 2006 to 2010. A significant association was found between the presence of angiotensin-related medication and decreased PTSD symptoms. There was an approximately 25% decrease in PTSD symptoms in patients taking angiotensin-related medication, but there were no differences among subjects taking other blood pressure medications, including beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and diuretics. These data provide the first clinical evidence supporting a role for the renin-angiotensin system in the regulation of stress response in patients with PTSD. The authors conclude that further studies should examine whether available medications targeting this pathway should be considered for future treatment of and potential protection against PTSD symptoms. Two areas of concern have recently surfaced regarding schizophrenia trials. First, over time, placebo response in these trials has increased, while treatment effect has decreased. Second, trials are increasingly being conducted outside North America, and the implications are unclear. To investigate these areas of concern, a group from the Food and Drug Administration looked at differences in efficacy findings from trials submitted to the FDA in support of new drug applications from 1991 to 2008. The investigators analyzed aggregated trial level data from 21 North American and 11 multi regional randomized controlled trials. The amount of change from baseline for the positive and negative syndrome scale was the primary outcome of interest. In multiregional trials, the placebo and drug responses were generally larger than in the North American trials, but the placebo-subtracted treatment effects were similar. North American trials showed a rising placebo response and a diminishing treatment effect over time. Body weight and BMI were higher in North American trials, with treatment effects decreasing as body weight increased. In addition, the trial success rates declined slightly over time, even though the sample sizes increased. Substance use disorders and depressive symptoms often co-occur. When this happens, it is important to determine whether the depressive symptoms are due to the substance use or should be treated like symptoms of MDD. A group supported by the National Institutes of Health used data from a large epidemiologic study of U.S. adults to compare three groups, people with MDD and no substance use disorder, people with comorbid MDD and substance use disorder, and people with substance-induced mood disorder. The lifetime prevalence of MDD with no substance use disorder was 7%. The prevalence of MDD plus a substance use disorder was 6%, and the prevalence of substance-induced mood disorder was less than 1%. Risk factors for MDD were more common among those who had MDD plus substance use disorder and among those with substance-induced mood disorder than among those with MDD with no substance use disorder. Individuals with substance-induced mood disorder were less likely to receive medication than those in the other two groups, but were more likely to use alcohol and drugs to relieve their depressive symptoms. The main conclusions were, one, that comorbidity with a substance use disorder increases the severity of MDD, and two, that the similarities in comorbidity and risk factors between substance-induced mood disorder and MDD with substance use disorder suggest that the two conditions might be the same and thus require the same treatment. Research has shown that patients with bipolar disorder have elevated rates of serious medical problems. Feldman and colleagues studied a group of bipolar patients to determine what percentage of patients had co-occurring medical problems and to find out how many of these patients were unaware of their medical problems. The sample was made up of bipolar patients who had consented to participate in one of two double-blind drug trials. The patients had already passed two phases of screening in which they confirmed that they had no serious or untreated medical conditions. Of the patients who made it through the first two phases of screening but were excluded before randomization, 31% were excluded because of medical conditions. Seventy percent of these patients were previously unaware of their conditions. These results suggest that bipolar patients may not only have high rates of medical problems, but also may be unaware of these problems. Therefore, co-occurring medical conditions may be a more serious issue in the bipolar community than previously realized. The authors suggest that physicians should include extra screening for medical problems in bipolar patients, even when the patients do not report problems. In this study, the aim was to identify genetic variants that might predict response to treatment with olanzapine-fluoxetine combination in patients who were in a treatment-resistant major depressive episode and were not responsive to fluoxetine monotherapy. Patients with MDD received open-label fluoxetine treatment for eight weeks. Non-responders to fluoxetine were then randomized to double-blind treatment in one of three drug groups, olanzapine-fluoxetine combination, fluoxetine monotherapy, or olanzapine monotherapy. For each treatment group in the double-blind phase, associations were examined between treatment improvement and a priori-selected candidate gene single nucleotide polymorphisms. The results show that an intronic single-nucleotide polymorphism in the norepinephrine transporter was significantly associated with improvement during treatment with lanzepine fluoxetine combination. This polymorphism was not associated with improvement in the other treatment groups. A number of polymorphisms of the norepinephrine transporter were nominally associated with improvement in opposite directions with olanzapine-fluoxetine combination versus continued fluoxetine monotherapy. The authors conclude that olanzapine and fluoxetine express a synergistic effect on prefrontal cortical levels of norepinephrine and dopamine. This synergism may be one of the underlying mechanisms for the efficacy of olanzapine-fluoxetine combination in treatment-resistant depression. This study's findings of a significant association between a genetic variant in the norepinephrine transporter and improvement during treatment with olanzapine-fluoxetine combination versus continued fluoxetine monotherapy further supports this model. Can enhancement of N-methyl-D-aspartate or NMDA activity benefit patients with schizophrenia? Some researchers have suggested that it might. They have hypothesized that positive and negative symptoms and cognitive deficits in schizophrenia may arise from impairment of NMDA neurotransmission. On the basis of encouraging results of trials in which NMDA agonists were added to antipsychotics, the investigators in this study conducted an adequately powered randomized control trial adding d an NMDA modulator, to antipsychotics. The study, which was funded by Stanley Medical Research Institute, included 195 patients. For 16 weeks, the patients received double-blind treatment of placebo or deserin as an add-on treatment to antipsychotics. Subjects had DSM-IV-diagnosed schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder and were inpatients or outpatients stabilized on antipsychotics with persistent negative symptoms. The primary outcome measures were changes in negative symptoms and cognition. The results indicated that no significant differences were observed between the d and placebo groups. d was found to be well-tolerated. Although the study did not find a significant difference between drug and placebo, the authors note that the results were limited by a relatively large placebo response and somewhat lower achieved doses than in prior studies. They envisage that ongoing studies with a higher dose of D-serin and with other glutamatergic treatments may provide additional opportunities to test predictions of NMDA models of schizophrenia. Predicting future suicide attempts is a major challenge for physicians. The Sad Person Scale was introduced almost 30 years ago as a way of assessing suicide risk and since has become a popular tool used worldwide. The scale is a mnemonic of 10 potential suicide risk factors and gives a total score based on the sum of risk factors present, each scored with one point. In this study, Bolton and colleagues present the first evaluation of the SAD person scale in predicting future suicide attempts among individuals presenting for psychiatric services in the emergency department. Over 4,000 patients were assessed and followed for over two years to see whether their initial SAD person score could predict a future suicide attempt. The results showed that the sad person scale did not predict future suicide attempts better than chance. Only five of the scale items were found to be linked with suicide attempts, and a scale composed of just these five items outperformed the original scale. However, no matter how the scale was modified, it could not assess risk of suicide attempt at an acceptable level. The authors acknowledge that the study was limited, as it did not examine completed suicide. They conclude that the sad person scale does not appear to be able to predict future suicide attempts and that clinicians should therefore not solely rely on it when performing risk assessment in the emergency department. The authors also note that suicide risk scales should be evaluated thoroughly before widespread implementation. Rates of cardiometabolic morbidity and mortality are high in patients with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. A major contributing factor to this problem is the adverse cardiometabolic effects of antipsychotics. It is therefore important that clinicians be fully informed of therapeutic options with the lowest likelihood of increasing cardiometabolic risk. To this end, investigators performed analyses, sponsored by Pfizer, of changes in weight, body mass index, fasting lipids, and fasting glucose, using pooled data from all Pfizer-sponsored clinical trials of oral ziprasidone monotherapy for treatment of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder in adults. Data were analyzed separately for randomized controlled trials. The results showed that in randomized controlled trials lasting up to three months, change in weight was minimal for both placebo treated and zaprazidone treated subjects. In controlled trials lasting longer than three months, both zaprazidone and placebo treated patients actually lost weight. Additionally, the controlled studies indicated no significant differences between placebo and drug groups for changes in fasting triglycerides, total cholesterol, low-density or high-density lipoprotein cholesterol, or glucose. Changes in zeprazidone-treated subjects in all controlled and uncontrolled studies were minimal. The authors note that these analyses confirm prior reports of the favorable weight and metabolic profile of ziprasidone in patients with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Weight change was assessed in an observational cohort of 4,600 patients who took the same antipsychotic for three years as part of the Eli Lilly-funded Worldwide Schizophrenia Outpatient Health Outcomes Study. In addition to mean weight change, a complete range of categorical variables with possible meaning for the patients were analyzed, including the number of patients who became overweight and the time period over which this happened. The study's main findings were that significant weight gain and weight loss were measured in patients taking every antipsychotic. Weight gain was maximal over the first six months of treatment, but over three years, there was never a true plateau. The percentages of patients who gained at least 7% of their body weight ranged from 33% for amisulpride to 45% for olanzapine. Depending on the particular antipsychotic used, between 7% and 15% of patients moved into body mass index category above 25. The authors conclude that weight gain is thus common with all antipsychotics studied and seems always to be incremental over time. For patients, they point out that weight management may be helpful with any antipsychotic use and needs to be initiated early and extend long-term. The abnormal body perception and attitudes of anorexia nervosa patients make this disorder difficult to manage. Although non-pharmacologic treatments are the standard of care, these strategies often fail to achieve body weight goals. Antipsychotics, particularly second-generation antipsychotics, have been used off-label to treat anorexia nervosa because of the association of these drugs with weight gain. A recent meta-analysis looked at randomized controlled trials of antipsychotics and anorexia nervosa as compared to placebo or treatment as usual. The analysis included 221 patients and 8 studies that lasted between 7 and 12 weeks. Patients received olanzapine, quetiapine, risperidone, pimozide, sulpiride, placebo, or usual care. Patients receiving antipsychotics did not increase their weight or their body mass index significantly more than those in the comparator groups. There are also no differences in scores on questionnaires related to anorexia, depressive symptoms, or anxiety. In a single study, quetiapine outperformed usual care with regard to eating disorder attitudes and anxiety. With regard to side effects, drowsiness or sedation was more frequent with antipsychotics. Although this meta-analysis was limited by small sample sizes, the analysis did not demonstrate antipsychotic efficacy for body weight and related outcomes in female patients with anorexia nervosa. The authors note that larger trials are needed to determine whether specific patient or treatment factors influence the success or failure of antipsychotics in anorexia nervosa. Although research has shown that aggression towards others is a problem for a subset of veterans, no studies have empirically examined protective factors that contribute to a lower risk of community violence among veterans. To address this issue... A group funded by the NIMH and the VA conducted a national survey of randomly selected Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans from all military branches who served after September 11, 2001. The respondents were either separated from active duty or in the Reserves or National Guard. One third of the veterans reported committing acts of aggression towards others in the past year, mostly involving minor aggressive behavior. A stable living situation, positive social support, greater resilience, the perception of having control over one's life, and having money to cover basic needs were associated with lower odds of violence and aggression. The subset of veterans with few protective factors appeared to be at higher risk. For violence. The authors conclude that identification of protective factors could help clinicians to assess veterans' risk of violence using an evidence based and patient centered approach. Rehabilitation focused on improving psychosocial functioning and well being could help reduce the risk of violence in veterans. Did you know that in schizophrenia patients who smoke at least half a pack a day, the dose of clozapine or olanzapine should be increased by about 50%? In this month's installment of the new online-only Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade offers advice and clinical pearls for treating schizophrenia patients who smoke. If you are listening from outside the table of contents, just go to psychiatrist.com and type in the keyword practical to read the column and join the discussion. In closing, I refer you to our online exclusive section, which includes an important case report of an adult male patient who presented with acute psychosis after abrupt self-withdrawal from buprenorphine, a drug often used in the treatment of heroin dependence. The authors discussed the interesting issues of the case and the ultimate success achieved with reintroduction of the drug followed by very gradual discontinuation. Also, be sure to read this month's book reviews and participate in the interactive activities from our CME Institute. Join us online for all this and much, much more from the June issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.